It's the summer of the gun 2.0 in Toronto and Mayor John Tory said that he's been doing everything he can to stem the tide of gun violence washing through Toronto streets. But has Tory really been focusing his efforts and his resources in the right direction? It's July 20th, 2018. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed and you're watching The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Gang violence is out of control in Toronto. As I'm recording this, there have been 220 shootings so far in Toronto this year. Now I've got theories about how this gang violence got so far out of control. I think it was a perfect storm. Equal parts lack of foresight, a politically correct mayor who cowered to political pressure from anti-police groups, a refusal by police administration to acknowledge a problem was happening at all, and a mayor that would rather suck up to the Trudeau liberals than take the steps he needs to, to keep his community safe. In 2017, as gun violence was maintaining its upward trend from the atrocious year before, Toronto, at least according to the police association, was down about 500 cops from their usual staffing levels. The police association was saying that the police were overburdened, overworked, they couldn't keep up. Now there had been a hiring freeze on the police for a couple of years by then, and only after the deadly summer of 2017 did Tory finally agree to hire just 80 more cops to supplant the officers leaving the force to retirement. Of all the things that Toronto blows taxpayer money on, they were sure tight-fisted with the police. The city needed 500 more cops. They were in the middle of a violent crime wave, and yet Tory okayed the police to hire just 80 cops to replace some old-timers on their way out. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't enough planning. But why in 2017 was Tory so averse to hiring cops in the first place? Well, that's the second part of the perfect storm of Toronto, where the problem of having a politically correct mayor comes into play. Tory was scared helpless of the anti-police wackos in Black Lives Matter. Tory ended the police carding policy, which allowed Toronto police to routinely and randomly stop citizens and then record personal information because activists like those in Black Lives Matter said carding disproportionately targeted the city's black community. Now the information garnered through carding was kept on record for an undetermined amount of time, but it was easily available for police to access in investigations. It was a valuable intel tool for police that was used to keep the black community safe. But Tory ended it because of pressure from BLM and to be politically correct, and now the black community is paying the price for it all. And at the behest of BLM, Toronto police were banned from attending the Pride Parade. BLM insisted police were oppressive, part of systemic anti-black racism. And yet, even after that, Tory thought the anti-police BLM had done good work to shine a light on racism, I guess through their constant public tantrums and anti-police rhetoric. You know what, that had to set a tone for police morale when their mayor sides with anti-police activists. Which brings us to the failure by officials to even acknowledge that a problem was unfolding in Toronto in the first place. In 2016, people were starting to wonder if Toronto was in the middle of a replay of the 2005 Summer of the Gun. In 2016, from January to June, there were 21 fatal shootings in Toronto. In summer 2017, same thing again. People were starting to wonder if they were headed into yet another 
Summer of the Gun in Toronto streets. And not just any people were wondering, experts. Toronto Police Association President Mike McCormick tweeted then, Year of the Gun, the sequel? 25 shooting deaths January to July 2005. 23 shooting deaths year to date in 2017, including three dead and five injured in three days. Toronto Police spokesman Mark Pugash, though, he didn't think there was any relevance in comparing 2017 to 2005 Summer of the Gun. I don't know what benefit there is to comparing where we are today to 12 years ago, Pugash was quoted as saying in the Toronto Sun. But when we're looking at just the raw data, the shooting rate for 2017 was the same as 2016 at 286 and 285 respectively. It was a lot. In 2015, there were 255 shootings and just 123 in 2014. It had more than doubled in a couple of years. There was a frightening upward trend in shootings that should have set alarm bells off all over the place, but it was actively being downplayed, at least in the media, by police administration. And that Brings us to the next factor. Tory sucked up to the Liberals to be liked by the media, and now he's living with the consequences of those failed social policies. John Tory's a big fan of the Liberals' supervised drug injection sites. But here's the thing about having junkies congregate in certain locations around your city. Guess who's big into the drug dealing business? Gangs, organized crime, they sell drugs, they sell guns, they human traffic, and sometimes they even shoot people. And when you create supervised drug injection sites, you're creating a big fat welcome sign for gangs to move in. And speaking of welcome signs, Tory's also a big fan of Justin Trudeau's Welcome to Canada tweet. You know that tweet, it welcomed every self-deporting illegal migrant from the United States to seek safe haven in Toronto. And I'm not even saying that illegal migrants are part of the gang problem, but you know what? The Americans sure are. In fact, American intelligence agencies in 2017 warned us that Somalis with criminal records were coming across into Canada and claiming asylum to avoid prosecution. The Americans said that these criminals would pose security threats to us here in Canada. And just this week, Justin Trudeau shuffled his cabinet and created a new ministry, one that specifically deals with border security and gangs. So even the federal government thinks the two issues are intrinsically linked. But at its most basic, when you advocate for open borders, and you know what John Tory does, here's a picture of him standing in front of a podium with open borders written on the poster just below him. You can't control what's coming into the country. And if people can certainly just walk across the border, you know what? So can guns, a lot of them. And when the Liberals proposed a gun and gang summit under the alleged guise of dealing with the problems of Toronto, Tory jumped at the chance to help the Liberals use the gang violence in his city as the next reason to strip gun rights away from innocent legal gun owners all across the country. When Tory was given the chance at the Gun and Gang Summit to ask for federal help combating the gangs running rampant in Toronto, Tory took a hardline stance, that's for sure. But not against foreign gun traffickers, no, but against lawful Canadian firearms owners that he accused of domestically trafficking firearms to the gangs infesting his city. It was outrageous. According to the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights, who were actually at the summit, Tory blamed Canadian gun owners for the gun crime in Toronto. The CCFR quoted Tory 
as throwing out strange statistics that there had been an incredible jump in the number of domestically sourced firearms being used in crimes. The CCFR said Tory stated that 50% of guns used in crime come from within Canada, implying gun owners are selling their legally obtained firearms to gang members and to criminals. It was unbelievable. Tory has subhuman monsters, the kind that gun down little girls as they play, roaming the streets of his city. And he was asking the government to come after me and millions of other highly vetted law-abiding Canadian citizens. That's what Tory wanted from the feds. And of course, out of that summit came the Liberals' new gun control bill, C-71. That bill does nothing to combat gangs. It outlaws two long guns, the CZ-858 and the Swiss Arms Green Carbine, guns that are not used by Toronto's gangsters. And now I have to report to some bureaucrat in a cubicle somewhere if I were to use a handgun at the range, which is the only place I'm legally allowed to use it anyway. What a pathetic waste of police resources. But here's the real rub. It doesn't really matter how bad it gets in Toronto because Tory doesn't have to live with the mess he let happen in Toronto if he doesn't really want to. You see, Tory has a home in an exclusive gated community in Florida. It's called Lost Tree Village, where Tory's neighbors include Home Depot founder Ken Langone and billionaire hedge fund investors. It's a place where security guards carry guns Tory says I shouldn't have to keep him safe in his bed at night. Stay with us, more Head from the Rebel after the break. I think a lot of the problem with what's happening in Toronto is that politicians are talking about what police need to do to curb the rising tide of violence in Toronto communities. And they're not talking enough to police officers who don't have political aspirations, but police officers who want to just do their job and make their community safer. So I thought, what a great opportunity to have an actual former police officer on the show. Tonight, joining me is Leo Knight. He's a former RCMP officer and a Vancouver Police Service member, and he's also a private security consultant. Leo, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome, Sheila. I wanted to talk to you about some of the uh, implications that it has for police when politicians sort of play politics with their job. Um, for example, John Tory has come out against carding, which I think is a valuable tool for police to gain intel um, into, you know, gang membership. And he's also come out in strong support of open borders and sanctuary cities. And for me, I think both of those things can be a uh, organized crime draw when there's expected to be a, a blind eye turned by policing to these issues. What do you think? Well, in the first instance, carding is nothing new. It's uh, it used to be done back in the old days, literally on the index cards that were uh, filed in in the records office, and it's just a way of gathering intelligence. And it's uh, if you come across somebody in the street, you fill out a, a very small bit of information, name, address, uh, date of birth, and description, and what the contact reason was for. Um, it's very 
all police departments use it. It's, it's a way of gathering intelligence and it's a way of, of retroactively uh, solving crimes. If something happens in a particular neighborhood and you go through the cards and you find out that, oh, so-and-so was actually there five minutes before, ten minutes before, you know, then you can uh, you can use that as, a, as an investigative tool to go and try and uh, solve a particular event. Now, activist groups like Black Lives Matter, they've come out and said that carding is racist because it, you know, uh, they say it targets uh, visible minorities for police harassment. What do you say to them? Well, I think it ignores the elephant in the room, which is the vast majority of violent crime is committed uh, by the gangs. And uh, in Toronto, the gangs are, are, are primarily black gangs. Uh, you know, you, you can you can dance around that all you want, but that's reality. Now, uh, we've just seen reports out of Baltimore that uh, police have basically stopped policing since their city council has cozied up to anti-police activists in Black Lives Matter. I'm concerned, that given John Tory's sort of cozy relationship with Black Lives Matter, that we might be seeing some of that happen in Toronto in the future. Well, I think you're already seeing it. Um, the, the, you know, I mean, part of the politics of policing uh, is is uh, the, the union, the police union, and the politics that they play to get more members to, you know, and all of that stuff, more money, more members. That's it's typical union politics. So that that's part of this uh, this equation as well. Let's not lose sight of that. Uh, the other part of it too, with that, uh, that you're referring to, is when you have these community groups speaking out and and then politicians. Uh, try and form policy based on on the politics of that, uh, instead of letting the professionals in the police department develop their policy in response to problems in, in the, their community. Um, you create further problems. The problem in Baltimore uh, has resulted in what's called in the policing world FIDO uh, response, which is effort. You can figure out what that means. Effort drive on, uh, and that means that police are not being proactive. They're strictly being reactive. They'll get a call for service, they respond to the call, deal with it, do their paperwork and clear and take another call. Um, when you take away the proactive part of policing, that's when you see spikes in violence, spikes in, uh, in all manner of things, in all types of crimes, simply because you're not, uh, if, if they're strictly being reactive, they, they're, they're, they're just responding to calls for service, you know, period. And, and that's what the FIDO uh, problem results in. You know, I think that that's a great point that when you create an adversarial relationship with police, police, I mean, really, they are putting their lives on the line every day to defend our communities. And when we treat them like they are potential murderers every day, if they have to draw their weapon and defend themselves, um, of course, that's going to change how they respond um, to violent crime. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about John Tory's embrace of sanctuary cities, open borders, and even supervised injection sites. For me, I think all three of those things are draws for organized crime. Uh, you know, when you're advocating for open borders in sanctuary cities, it sure makes it easy for those handguns to get trafficked across the very porous border and into the hands of Toronto gangs. And I think naturally, supervised injection sites, anywhere you have drug addicts, you'll have drug dealers, and anywhere you have drug drug dealers, you'll have organized crime. And yet, John Tory seems to be embracing those things on one hand and then concerning himself with the rising tide of violence on the other. And I, I think at some point he has to make the connection that 
he can either do one or the other, but not both. Well, again, the, the, the political correctness and all that, and, and Toronto is certainly a diverse community and, and, and multicultural community. Uh, Tory, it seems to me, is trying to be all things to all people. You've got uh, stories in Toronto. I mean, there's been something in the neighborhood of 275 shootings this year alone. And that's an incredible number. And you go back to the uh, the so-called year of the gun, which was 2005, when you saw similar numbers. And that resulted in, in the formation of Toronto's uh, anti-violence uh, uh, team called TABIS, T-A-B-I-S. Um, Tory, when he became mayor, also disbanded TABIS. Uh, and he, he put an end to carding. Well, you've taken away the, the two of the primary proactive things that police can do to keep a lid on the violence. And, and you can't, you, you, Tory just simply can't be all things to all people. If he's going to be responsive to the majority of the community that wants to put an end to the violence, then he's got to put down his politically correct nonsense. Now, I called you a private security consultant, but you're also a former police officer. So I thought, who better to ask about the solutions, the immediate, easy solutions, really, that um, John Tory could make if he, like you say, would put aside that politically correct nonsense. How, uh, what are the things that he could do to make Toronto safer today? Well, I think restoring uh, Tavis or a version of that, and it's, it's basically it's a rapid response team where you can move them anywhere around the city of Toronto to problem neighborhoods, uh, areas where you see a spike in violence. And uh, they're called, it's a rapid response team for exactly that. You get a quick response to problems and, and they can deal with problems. In New York PD, they call it the anti-crime unit. Uh, Vancouver has a gun suppression uh, unit. You know, it's, uh, it's the same sort of thing though. The concept is having a, a highly mobile rapid response team um, that can deal proactively uh, with problems before they occur or neighborhoods where they are occurring and they can try and take the problem out. Now, I wanted to ask you about some of John Tory's focus. He seems to be reiterating this lie, and I don't know where it came from, that legal Canadian gun owners are responsible for straw purchases. Um, uh, to hand off their handguns to drug dealers and gangbangers. That's one of the things he actually said at his gangs and guns conference that he held with uh, Ralph Goodale was that, you know, he estimated that 50% of these guns are, you know, being purchased legally. Now, uh, I don't know where he got that number, but I'm more inclined to believe that those guns were stolen from legal gun owners who are then the victims of crime, and yet we're demonizing them as participants in this crime. Uh, what do you think about John Tory's uh, strange focus on pushing for gun control for normal people um, when it's illegal guns that are causing the problems in his community? There's an old saying, Sheila, that when guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns. Um, First off, John Tory doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, secondly, the vast majority of guns uh, coming into this country come in illegally through smuggling operations. The biggest one near Toronto is through the Okmosasini Reserve. Um, until you, you start attacking uh, those uh, smuggling routes, um, you can't 
stop the number of guns on the streets. That's that's the first real problem with that. Um, legal gun ownership, uh, as you know, you're in Alberta, Sheila. I mean, mm-hmm. you know lots of people in Alberta that have guns in their houses and they don't do anything. They're, they don't commit violence. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a straw man argument that he's trying and, and it's just wrong. You know, I think it's easy to make gun owners comply to gun laws because they are by nature lawful people. Um, And it's just harder to do the hard things and, like you say, cut through the political correctness to target the demographics that are committing these crimes in Toronto. Exactly. It's it's nonsensical arguments, and we've been hearing them for years, and you still hear them in the United States as well every time there's a shooting. when you have illegal gun law, or you have gun laws uh, in places like New York and Chicago, and yet they, you know, they still have an incredible amount of illegal gun crime. Um, you know, you, you're not solving the problem by doing that. The way to solve the problem is, is first off, you got to be. It's got to be a two-part solution. You have to have a rapid response team that can go into these neighborhoods, go into the gang areas, and that target the gangs. Uh, you know, be able to compile and analyze intelligence about who's doing what to whom, who's a member of this, who's associating with who. That's all important part of police work. Uh, the second part of that is you've got to have. And this is this is a federal responsibility, the responsibility of the RCMP uh, to attack the smuggling routes and working in conjunction with the uh, Canadian Border Services folks uh, to try and stop the smuggling of weapons into the country. Uh, and, and it's got to be a two-pronged approach or, you, or you're just going to see more and more crime. It's just it's as simple as that. You know what? And it's it's such a waste of police resources to target the law abiding when there are just so few police resources that can be dedicated to, you know, really saving lives in Toronto communities. Now, let's hope the politicians and decision makers actually start listening to experts and, you know, frankly, the beat cops that are doing this work um, instead of the cops with political aspirations of, you know, maybe joining the Liberal Party of Canada as a an MP. Because it's just so important for us to get this right and get this right right now. Well, in my view, and I think you and I have spoken about this before, Sheila, in my view, the politicians need to stay out of it and, and the, the professionals in policing need to get involved. And I'm not talking about at the political level of policing like Chief Saunders. I'm talking about pushing it down again to the people who are, uh, are experts in what's happening in the streets and then coming up with solutions from uh, from those folks who are exactly that. They're the experts. You know, someone who's sitting around a politically correct council table or a police board meeting uh, has no experience to uh, to design police uh, police response and police tactics. You know, Leo, from your mouth to God's ears, I want to thank you for joining me, and I want to thank you for doing something the politicians don't seem to be doing, and that's offering reasonable solutions to this. Um, and I hope you'll make time to join us again. Anytime, Sheila. Thank you. That's Leo Knight, former RCMP and Vancouver police member, offering some real solutions that the politicians just don't seem to have. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Well, everybody, we heard from Leo Knight giving us a law enforcement perspective on John Tory's gang violence. But now I'd like to talk to a gun owners advocacy group. 
Joining me now is Tony Bernardo from the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. And we're here to talk about how C-71 was in the cooker already with regard to stripping away Canadian gun rights. And John Tory's Gangs and Guns Summit was just the excuse, like Tony told me off camera, to carpet bomb, to lay cover for the introduction of the new law. You know, Tony, let's talk about Bill C-71. We know that the excuse the government gave us for it coming to being was that John Tory pushed for measures in the law to combat gang violence in his city. But really, the bill does none of that. It just targets the lawful because that's the path of least resistance. Yeah, and really it, it doesn't even target the lawful so much as it does create a bunch of bureaucratic paperwork nonsense. It's not like they're they're doing much in the way of banning things or changing the Firearms Act. They're just making a whole lot of paperwork that people have to deal with and going back and giving the RCMP back the, the two guns that they, uh, they asked to banned back a few years ago. Right. And the CZ858 and the Swiss Arms Green Carbine, those aren't exactly the choice of gangbangers in Toronto, are they? No, not so much. Um, you know, first of all, the Swiss Arms is a very, very expensive firearm. And, and, and the, the, the choice of firearms for criminals are almost exclusively handguns. And we have some of the toughest handgun laws in the world right now, and it, they seem to be able to circumvent those laws. Now, John Tory at that Gangs and Guns Summit, he made mention of straw purchases or uh, legal Canadian handguns owners like you and I willingly going out, buying guns to circumvent the system, and then handing them off to gangbangers. And he cited some strange number of about 50% of guns being Canadian sourced. But he didn't provide any information yeah, well, to... For, yeah, go ahead. No, there, there's a bunch of things involved with this, first of all. Anyone who d tries to do straw purchases of restricted or prohibited firearms in Canada uh, has a special little place on the funny farm because you'd have to be insane to try something like that here. The, the second thing is... They talk about 50% of the guns uh, being sourced in Canada, but there's a few things they never, ever say. They never, ever say how many guns is 50%. Because, you see, it's 50% of the guns they were able to trace, and they were only able to successfully trace 12% of the crime guns. So we're talking 50% of 12%. <laughs> they don't actually tell you how many guns it is because if they came back to you and they said, well, it's 22 firearms, the, the, the media would have no interest in that whatsoever. But they use the percentages to make it sound really, really racy. And, you know, when, when we were there at the Guns and Gangs Summit, there was a, a very interesting presentation done by the uh, the person from CBSA. Uh, she did a great presentation talking about how CBSA has successfully upped their game in terms of interdiction of crime guns at the border, which, by the way, is fantastic news for all of us. And they have really increased the number of crime guns seized. And it's interesting that even Bill Blair, when he was thanking the presenter for doing the, the great job she did uh, 
said, it's wonderful to see the CBSA is seizing so many guns. That's changing the ratio between how many guns are sourced and how many are coming across the border. In other words, it's not that there's more guns being sourced or stolen in Canada. It's that there's a lot less of them coming from the states, and it's changed the ratio, and we're still talking about 50% to 12%. Right, and that 50% of 12%, John Tory didn't make a distinction between what he called internally trafficked guns or domestically trafficked guns and guns that had been stolen from legal firearms owners. So he went out of his way to demonize the people who are victims of violent gangs who are breaking into their houses and stealing their guns. He actually advocated for more laws to be imposed on people who are actually the victims of violent crime. That's, that's right. And you know, when they're talking about crime guns, they're not talking about guns used in crime. They're talking about guns recovered at crime scenes. They may have been used. But for an example, if you had an arson, that's a crime scene. If they took two guns out of a gun safe, that's two guns that were found at a crime scene. Right. That's an excellent point. Now, I wanted to talk to you, Tony, because news has come out and I saw it on the gun blog a month ago. And I see the mainstream media is just sort of catching up to that, that you were listed as someone who was consulted on Bill C-71. But as most liberal consultations are, it was a complete and total sham. And your group, the CSSA, was not consulted at all. Yeah. No, no, we were not consulted, and I don't know of any firearms group in the country that was. And, you know, this is particularly disturbing when you consider that our president, Steve Torino, has sat on every single firearms advisory committee all the way back to Allen Rock. And I've sat on every single firearms advisory committee all the way back to Ann McClellan. So we're dealing with several decades of experience on this issue. We've been advisors to ministers, both liberal and conservative, and always given them fair and faithful impartial advice to the best of our ability. You know, both Steve and I are accredited experts on firearms in the Supreme Court of Ontario for myself and Quebec for Steve. And I mean, if, if you can't get much higher accreditation than that, and yet we were not even asked to the table at any point in time, nor were we even consulted about how these changes might impact our communities. Terrible. Just terrible. And the people they did consult were, you know, Alan Rock cronies and social justice weirdos, uh, people who would <laughs> love to see women like me stripped of my right yeah. to own a firearm um, in the name of... Uh, you know, protecting me from male violence. Yeah, actually, I think they even say at times it's protecting you from yourself. Uh, you know, it, it's amazing these social justice warriors. They have no regard for anybody, uh, anyone's opinion other than their own. And of course, they're always right. So I guess the big question is, does it end here? We have, you know, a little over a year and maybe close to a half of uh, the Trudeau government before the next election. Does it end here? Are they gonna do more? Are they gonna be satisfied with this? I suspect no. Uh, no, they're, they're never satisfied. They won't be satisfied until they get the very last pellet gun. You know, they're, they're never going to end. This is never going to end in my lifetime or in yours. And um, we will be talking about this for a long time to come. However, 
it may be the end of it right now for the liberals. Um, I, I, I can't see the liberals have, having awakened such a huge sleeping bear with this bill, the C-71, which isn't even a shadow of of the former C sixty eight. I mean, seventy one is bad. Let's let there's no there's no way around it, and it recreates the gun registry, and it does a whole bunch of bad things. But it's not even significant in scope compared to the C sixty eight when it was around. I can't see the liberals getting the reaction they're getting now, and then willingly going back in the barrel. Doesn't make any sense. They never do, though. <laughs> well, Tony, I want to tell you to, <laughs> to keep up the fight for people like me and for, you know, lawful Canadian gun owners who just really don't have the time to take on these battles because we're minding our business, paying our taxes and going about our lives. Yeah. That's right. We will keep up the battle, Sheila. Uh, you know, our, our association is fully committed to maintaining uh, Canadians' firearms rights. And uh, we will keep pushing this and pushing this until, uh, until we get it fixed. Well, everybody, that's Tony Bernardo from the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Stay tuned. More up on The Rebel. Now, this is the part of the show where Ezra normally reads his hate mail. Now, there are two things that I learned very quickly when I began working here at The Rebel. The first one was to never ever read the comments, but if you do, never ever take them seriously. So yeah, I do get my fair share of hate mail, and I try not to pay attention to it, but I'll pull up a few just so that you can see what it's like to be a conservative woman with ideas expressing them on the internet. Marty Trollington, and I'm sure that's exactly what it says on his driver's license, sent this word salad to my Facebook page. It read, Sheila Gunn-Reed is a fascist Zionazi supporting terrorist, and I have a present I intend to deliver personally to her and her terrorist associate criminals. Well, the good news for Marty is that he never actually tried to deliver something to me, and I think he should thank his lucky stars that he didn't. Probably the smartest thing he ever did. But you know what? At least he didn't call me Climate Barbie, because from what I understand on the internet, that is a really, really big deal. People write articles about that sort of stuff. And then I got this message to my Twitter account from some charmer called Sert Zeigt, I think. He says, you know, I like conservatives, but your nails on a chalkboard voice is the absolute effing worst. You look like you haven't worked a day in your life. Well, Sert Zeigt, if that's your real name, I'm not here to sing you a little tune. I'm here to bring you the other side of the story. And I think I do. And I work hard. I'm actually a farmer. But I do like to look like I'm a lady of leisure. So I'll take that second half of your comment as a compliment. Thank you. And then I thought I'd share with you this Amazon review of my book, The Case Against David Suzuki and Unauthorized Biography from somebody named James Gibb, which is probably actually his real name. Anyway, James writes, was going to pick up this book to read, but once I found out <laughs> Sheila Gunn-Reed is associated with the white supremacist, conspiracy theory, alt-right, etc., rebel media, I'll pass until a less biased writer takes this on. I mean, besides the fact that I'm a Zionist working for a Zionist company, which makes the accusations of alt-right ties just 
really stupid. The guy didn't even read my book, but he gave me one star based solely on my employment and not the content of a book he promises he'll never read. Seems legit, James. You know, the men and women on the feminist left sure do have a way with words for us little ladies, don't they? <laughs> Everybody, that's the show for tonight. I want to thank Ezra for giving me this opportunity to fill in for him. I want to thank everybody back in the office in Toronto for their patience during my first attempt at guest hosting for Ezra. And I want to thank all of you at home for tuning in. And remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think.